You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Thank you for downloading Core Curriculum. Uh, this is Series 3, and I'm uh, joined here on the phone here, or on Google Hangouts at any rate, uh, by Jordan Poss. Jordan, how are things? Uh, good. It's, as, as, I don't want to say any... After, you know, <laughs> after the last couple of uh, core, curric- core Curriculum episodes, I don't want to say anything to date this. So I'll just, I'll just say things are weird but good. Very good. I'll I think I might have dated it right there. <laughs> <laughs> and Michael, how are you? Oh, I'm all right, Nathan. Excellent, excellent. Uh, well, at any rate, this is the beginning of our series on Sappho. Uh, if you've been listening to Core Curriculum, you know that we've done two texts that have a, a central narrative going through them. First of all, Homer's Iliad, an epic poem, and then uh, Plato's Republic, uh, which is a philosophical dialogue, but nonetheless has a beginning, a middle, and an end. This series, we're going to be reading slowly through a collection of poems and fragments of poems from one of the more famous poets of the ancient world. Uh, you know, when people make lists of great Greek poets, uh, Sappho should be on that list. Um, Jordan, uh, you uh, teach some Western Civ. When you uh, talk to the young, what do you tell them about Sappho? Uh, if I mention her at all, it's usually in passing, honestly, because we... <laughs> Uh, in the first quarter of the semester in Western Civ, we're usually expected to cover everything from Babylon to the Hellenistic world. And uh, Sappho, and basically any Greek poet but Homer kind of gets gets the boot. I try to work in as much as I possibly can, and if I, but if I've, got, if I've got students who are precocious, I'll usually point them in the direction of her and other uh, Greek lyricists. But if, if I mention her, it's often in passing, honestly, and, and usually to kind of illustrate points about, you know, Greek religion, Greek society, that kind of thing. Oh, and also, also, and I'm sure this will come up later, uh, how little we have of this literature um, relative to how much we originally had. So, uh, yeah, that's that's basically it. Uh, from, from the perspective of an English teacher, what would you all say? <laughs> yeah, Michael, I mean, uh, you know, we're operating, roughly speaking, in the 7th century B.C. What else do we have to say about Sappho the person? Um, you know, she, uh, she very famously is from the Isle of Lesbos, uh, which gives us our word lesbian at different points in Sappho's reception. It's been popular to call her a lesbian in the current sense of that word or to not call her that. Uh, certainly she ran a school for women. Uh, and so there's a lot of women in her poem and often they're spoken about in romantic terms. Uh, our listeners who have read Foucault or other uh, more or less contemporary gender theorists will know that the concept of homosexuality as such does not really exist in the ancient world. So, uh, you know, I think it's fair to say that she had romantic feelings for women, whatever else she had. And uh, some of the future episodes are going to hit more on the love poems, but we're dealing here with uh, poems addressed to gods, actually to goddesses. I don't think we're dealing with one that's addressed to a male deity. Uh, there is a reference to Dionysius at one point, so we can say uh, gods and goddesses. Uh, and in fact, I mean, I'd like to start with the one that does make reference to Zeus and to Dionysius. Uh, listeners will be referring to these poems by their opening lines. Um, I'd like to go ahead and uh, get out in the open. Uh, I'm using the Penguin Classics uh, edition. Uh, Michael, which one are you using? I'm using Penguin Classics, which is translated by a guy named Aaron Puchigian. Is that who translated yours? Because they probably have multiple Penguin Classics editions. Yeah, that's actually why I didn't go any further than Penguin Classics, because I looked at that name and I said, no, I'm going to let Michael say it. (laughs) (laughs) Jordan, how about you? Uh, To prepare, I was actually consulting like three different ones. Uh, there's a couple, the first couple we'll talk about are in a volume called Greek Lyrics by Richmond Lattimore, uh, who a few people, when we did, when we did the Iliad referred to his copy of the Iliad or his translation of the Iliad, 
Uh, I also looked at Philip Freeman's, which was recommended by our own Todd Pedler. Uh, I've also got the Penguin Classics one, so for the sake of keeping things simple, I'm going to just stick with that one. And I also have the standard numbers written down for each of the poems we're talking about. So like a lot of ancient lyrics, uh, referring to it by its opening line is going to be difficult, right? Because it's going to be different for every translation. And, and depending on how loose the translation is, the opening line may not be all that close. So they've, they've been traditionally given numbers based on who discovered them and in what order they were first presented by them. So most numbers are by Lobel page LP numbers. And then also I have some by Voigt. So I'll, right, I'll, I'll try to make sure I give those out as we go through. I have them written down in my copy. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I forgot to jot those down in my notes. So Michael will be calling those out well, because, as well as pronouncing the names of translators. <laughs> I, and I could be wrong about that. Um, I, I And I only wrote them down because I was the one who organized these episodes. So I had to have some way to refer to them that everybody could have more or less equal access to. So I, I do have them all written down. And if anybody is interested in following up on those, the Puchigian they're in different orders. Yeah, I, I had to keep yes. consulting the index of first lines. The, Annoying. Yes. The, the Philip Freeman one has all of them in the proper sequence with the numbers. So if you're trying to follow along, Freeman will be talking about Puchigian, but Freeman might be easier for navigation. Also, I suspect you can find most of them for free online, probably yeah. with the numbers, but I haven't tried to do that myself. I, I started off that way, but a lot of them were public domain translations, which were quite archaic. Um, so I, I, that sent me to the library. Yeah, and I, I started to look at the Greek text of some of these, and then I got an email from a student saying, have you graded our papers yet? <laughs> Guys, I'd like to start with what I saw as kind of a connection between classical rhetoric and the language of prayer. Um, it's, it's the one that in the Penguin Classics, uh, the first line is, reveal your graceful figure here. That would be Voight 17. Voight 17, all right. One of the things that I, I note about this one, guys, is that uh, what we get is, you know, a narratio. We get, you know, account of previous instances where gods and humans interacted. We get a petition, uh, and we get, you know, a an appeal to the character of the gods here. And as we mentioned earlier, I mean, you know, we get uh, one of the few mentions of Zeus in this collection of poems. Um what else do you guys see going on here? Because, like I said, it's it's the structure of it, uh, it's the it's the rhetoric that I noticed. Uh, what jumped out at you, Jordan? Uh, well, first of all, this is one of the few because because I I dug through looking for allusions to other things that I knew a little bit better than Sappho. Because um, uh, until until we did this, I've mostly, you know, I've got collections of fragments and lyrics, and she's just kind of been one of the two dozen or so that I have read occasionally over the last 15, 20 years. Um, so I was looking around to kind of get a handle and, and this is one that's actually got Homeric allusions in it, but uh, in keeping with Greek mythology, which would, I think as we talked about drive modern internet nerds crazy, uh, the allusions don't actually match up. So this, this same story is alluded to in the Iliad or excuse me, in the Odyssey uh, and the details are completely different. So the, the reference here is to the Atridae, uh, do we do we want to read through these aloud? Yeah, we may as well. Do you want to read this one, Jordan? Yeah, sure. Uh, and uh, I, I like Puchigian's style. He does actually translate it into rhyming uh, quatrains, um, which, as far as I can tell with comparison with other translations, doesn't actually do much violence to the meaning or the arrangement of the lines, which is an accomplishment. So uh, this one is, Reveal your graceful figure here, close to me, Hera. I make entreaty just as the kings once made their prayer, the famous Atridae. Winning victories by the score at Troy first, then at sea they sailed the channel to this very shore. Tried leaving but failed until they prayed to you, the savior Zeus and Theone's charming son. Like long ago, then grant this favor as you have done. And then we get a complete lacuna. Um, so the, the Homeric allusion um, is the, the immediate thing that jumped out to me. As well as, uh, and again, approaching this from the point of view of teaching Western Civ. Um, in the brief time that I have to try to explain Greek religion, I am at great pains t to teach my students who grew up on the Disney Hercules that uh, the, the myths are like the surface of the apple of Greek religion. Uh, so what we get here is a little, again, a, a little scrap of the mythology, which, which 
again, even there, there's a lot of different divergent versions of it uh, as well. Uh, but, but the mythology is being invoked specifically for religious purposes, right? It's, it's being invoked uh, to make some kind of request, and it's being done in some kind of ritualistic manner. Uh, we get the we get the uh, invocation of Hera, right, and the the reference back to the Atridae, uh, and apparently, you know, in show prep, Nathan mentioned wanting to go archaeological, which is probably my inclination as well. There's a lot of debate about whether this poem is um, referring to specific, how specifically this poem and a couple of the others are referring to real locations on Lesbos, uh, but uh, this this is. Ref- referring to an incident from uh, that, that is alluded to in the Odyssey. Um, also, um, what exactly she's asking for is missing. Uh, so th- it's kind of like the introduction to something where we're just starting to get a, a glimpse of... Uh, it's as if you saw the first two minutes of a bunch of other kinds of interactions without seeing what they led to, uh, which is tantalizing. Uh, I don't know, Michael, what, what, uh, what jumps out at you? A thing that shows up at several other places in her poems is her use of these, these myths, and in particular these warrior myths, which she then turns around to make them more suitable for women who um, are not fighting on the battlefield. So, so she, a woman of non-royal lineage, as far as we know, is making entreaty just as the kings once made their prayer. There's a kind of aggressive democratizing impulse in Sappho, and it's democracy not just in terms of class, but also in terms of gender. So I think it's interesting that she mentions Zeus, but the the immediate person whom she evokes in this poem is Hera, the, the goddess of marriage. And then at the bottom... Uh, I should have looked this up. She says, until they prayed to you, the savior Zeus and Theone's charming son. Who is Theone's son? Is that Dionysius? Yeah, Dionysius. Uh huh. Hera gets pride of placement in that um, in that three god uh, invocation. It's Hera, then Zeus, then Dionysius. Absolutely, it is. Which uh, you know, I I'm not an expert in in ancient Greek literature, but that's not something I imagine happens all that often. So we we really are getting we are really getting a woman's perspective in these poems, and and you see that not just in the ones we're reading for today, but in all of them. These are distinctly feminine poems about feminine concerns, uh, which. It's going to be a long time before we get that again on the core curriculum, I guess is what I'm saying. On the very first episode of the very first series, when we talked about the Iliad, I said that uh, Homer's not terribly interested in the interior life of the women in that poem, or really even in the Odyssey, although Penelope more so than the women in uh, the Iliad. Here we finally have someone who is very, very interested in the interior life of women and uh, portrays that in, I I think, really... um, I said aggressive earlier, really kind of boundary breaking ways. It's, it's very appealing. Indeed, indeed. And what's interesting here is that, you know, again, the rhetorical appeal is to an instance where Hera, uh, she presents Hera as the, the primary rescuer, uh, in this, you know, situation of real peril. Right. Uh, so as Michael said, I mean, uh, it, it's written by someone who is not, of the class that fights wars, which is to say it's written by a woman. Uh, and as Jordan says, we don't get, you know, the rest of the poem to find out what situation it is. Um, but it is this, you know, very, uh, I mean, I, my, the word that comes to my mind is transgressive appeal. Uh, you know, the situation of, you know, Menelaus and of Agamemnon is as my situation. Uh, so, I mean, it, it is a, uh, it, it, it's an appeal that says that we're all, in the same kind of scenario. But the, the transgression is very quiet. There's, there's a tendency when people are transgressing social norms to make a big show of it. I, I'm thinking in particular of like Aristophanes' comedies, and I can't remember if we're actually <laughs> reading any of them. But those are very, very loud in their transgression. The transgression is the point. To me, what Sappho is doing here and in the other poems where she makes a similar move is she seems hardly aware that she's transgressing. I'm sure she is. But she um, 
she she does not foreground the transgression. The point is always the thing she's saying, not the rules she's breaking and saying it. That makes good sense. Hmm. I'm I'm interested because a lot of these poems that we have read for today are invocations this way. They are calls for the god to draw near. Uh, you know, the, this one that we just now read, you know, starts off with, you know, come into our presence. Um, the poem Untainted Graces, and Michael, do you have the number for that one handy? Yeah, that's uh, Voight 53. Voight 53 is even more fragmentary, uh, but it is an invocation not to a single deity, uh, but to the graces as a collective. Um, I'll go ahead and read this one out loud, just since, since it's a relatively brief fragment. Untainted graces with wrists like roses, please come close, you daughters of Zeus. And it's interesting that, uh, again, when we talk about, you know, sort of the way that poets uh, treat women's bodies and goddesses' bodies in this case, uh, we often talk about the male gaze. And, and yet here, it, it's a similar device that we see in other poetry with the, you know, the, the comparison of body parts to other phenomena uh, that gets called a blazon in a lot of, you know, poetic intro to poetry classes. Uh, but this one is, is coming from uh, a suppliant rather than from a romantic admirer. Uh, Jordan, it's not a long poem, but I mean, what, what jumps out at you in these four lines? Uh, like, like a lot of the occasions, um, I'm struck. I mean, this is not in a modern christian context this is not that foreign but the repeated appeals to come close uh as i mean and i guess this is maybe part of that chasm and i think we're going to bring some of these differences back later uh the idea i i feel like you know the the idea of a lot of modern prayers that you know you know god be with us or you know god be near you or whatever uh people don't necessarily mean it literally because the idea of you know, the Christian God's omnipresence, but here there's a real repeated sense of, you know, one of the poems we'll look at later is actually invoking geography to ask, ask for a more immediate presence of the goddess, um, or in this case, the goddesses. Right. Although I will point out that, you know, classical theism is always a voice when it comes to the geography right. of God. There are certainly biblical narratives where God is, is, there and you know somebody asked right, god right, to right. come here yeah and I, and again i'm thinking largely in the kind of frankly sort of sentimental way people talk about that now uh but there's there's definitely a, a oh, yeah there's sure, definitely sure, a yeah. sense of movement uh that these these gods and goddesses really are traveling and they might be traveling fast as lightning but they they do have to they do have to travel and and a large part of uh uh the invocations is you know to flatter the gods enough to get their attention which is um as we know from other greek myths getting the attention of a god is tricky uh i would guess though and a mixed blessing if you get yes it. absolutely yeah uh i don't know uh michael what do you have to say um it it, it occurs to me that a lot of these invocations of the gods are still yeah. sexualized and and certainly you get that here i wonder if this was supposed to go on and what we'd be missing but the blazon is something that is certainly typically mm -hmm. sexualized and it's not that this isn't untainted graces with wrists like roses she's paying attention to their bodies mm -hmm. and the physical shape of those bodies more so than um whatever supernatural power they have i don't know that much about the graces do you either of you have any insight into to what they do traditionally not offhand no jordan do you have anything uh, Puchidjian notes that they were goddesses of grace, mirth, floral adornment, and relaxation, in short, the pleasures of life, which is a, about the extent of my impression of them. I, I get the feeling that they're kind of like, um, you know, if, if the muses are working all, all week, the graces come out on Saturday. Okay. Well, then, <laughs> um, then that, certainly the a, erotic quality of the poem would make sense then, right? Yes. Yeah, for sure. And I, uh, since you mentioned that as well, just the very first word, untainted, which... Um, I don't know what that is in the Greek or how else it might be translated, but that's that definitely has a lot of um, ambiguous sexual connotation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's, it's interesting, though, I mean, to come back to, you know, the language of prayer, and I mean, the, and the, the fact that, you know, Christian prayer continues to have a, 
a subgenre within prayer as a genre called the invocation, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I mean that that at, at minimum a geographic metaphor continues to be operative. So it's interesting mm-hmm. that you know that that tradition. You know, I, I think Jordan, you're right. Your your sense that it is more geographic, it is more literal in these poems than it would be in a Christian invocation. But there, there's still the sense that uh, you know human experience has a tendency to distance us, whether we mean that geographically or psychologically, from the divine. And that, you know, prayer is an act that, you know, bridges that distance. But it's, I mean, it's interesting. She's not asking for a favor here. If the graces are what Puchigian says they are, the, what, what she's asking for is just to enjoy her Saturday afternoon, you know, and, and whatever that entails. <laughs> right, mm-hmm. right. You know, it's a very, um, it's a short poem. There's not much in it. And yet, like almost everything she writes, there is a real, uh, delicate beauty to it if i'm not being too gendered by calling it delicate maybe it's just after reading homer and in anticipation of reading more homer but it's it's so nice (laughs) to hear somebody it's so nice to hear somebody talk about pleasure without imagining a battle axe about to fall on their head you know (laughs) yeah that makes some good sense that makes some good sense um yeah, or or to be transformed into swine, or you know whatever else happens in the Odyssey, that makes some good <laughs> right. sense. Uh, Michael, hmm. do you want to turn to? I'd, I'd like to you know talk about these invocation fragments kind of as a group here. Sure. Do you want to read uh, "Come Close, You Precious"? Sure, and that's uh, to our listeners. Thank you. Come close, you precious graces and muses with beautiful tresses. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, it, it, it seems to be of a of a kind with the invocations we've seen before. Uh, you know, we've got the blazon again. We've got the invocation of the muses. We've got the, you know, the bidding to come into physical proximity. I mean, is there any remainder, Michael? Well, you've got the muses here, whereas you only had the graces before. So now Sappho is talking self-consciously as a poet. Uh, we, t- we talked about her taking over male forms and transforming them into female forms. The, the epic poem famously begins with an invocation of the muse. We've got that here, only the muse is being invoked alongside the graces. So there's a, there's a pleasure in what she's doing where you might imagine uh, Homer kind of sweating and, and suffering over what he's writing. And I think also the that difference refers to the difference in reading the two. I mean, reading Sappho is pure pleasure for me in a way that reading Homer just is not. I have to work to read Homer, but Sappho, even with the lacuna in her um, in, in her fragments, she really presents herself to you as an object of, her poetry as an object of pleasure. I don't wanna, I don't wanna get too deep into the, uh, the, uh, the feminizing metaphors. Although, as you know, I mean, you know, I, I guess I wouldn't be too quick to say that we are imposing those sorts of things on the verse. I mean, they, they seem to emerge from the verse in a pretty real sense. And we're noted in antiquity as well. The the little bit that we know about Sappho comes from appar- apparently a couple of generations later in, in commentaries and, and praise from other poets, and um, they they very frequently um, point out kind of the um, simplicity and the elegance of her verse. I mean, in trying to do a little bit of background on this, those words came up over and over again, um, as opposed to, again, the kind of uh, more arch, formalistic style of Homer, which is, you know, this is lost on us now, but, you know, these were genre conventions for the many, many different kinds of Greek poetry. Well, and these are these are lyric poems, right. uh, a word that we think we understand, but um, Sappho, I, I believe, invents the form as far as we know, and they're called lyric poems because they're sung to the accompaniment of a lyre, mm-hmm. and so they're, they're, that musical quality, if you if you pick that up in the translation, is certainly meant to be there, and like all good music, it it has, or at least all you know, folk music, let's say, it has a simplicity to it that. Um, that might distract you from its quality mm-hmm. and its complexity and its, you know, um, the, the real skill it took to produce it. Right, absolutely. And, and I'm glad you mentioned the uh, folk music metaphor because that occurred to me at one point 
the uh, apparently, and, and I have no Greek, uh, so <laughs> I'm I'm going on what I've read here. Uh, one of the factors in how much of her work that we've lost, and we we only have one complete poem apparently. Uh, apparently, one of the factors is that she actually did write in dialect. So this is almost like you know. 19th century local color literature or you know mid 20th century folk music or something where it, it is paul lawrence dunbar yeah yeah so it's it it is um it is you know part of its simplicity is the fact that it is it's poetry but it is more directly the language of you know lesbos as opposed to again this this kind of preserve the preserved archaism of classical homeric greek very good, very good. Well, there's one more that is a, uh, you know, fairly simply addressed to gods, uh, you know, as a as a supplication, I'll put it that way, uh, and it is leave Crete. Uh, Jordan, uh, actually, first, Michael, what's the number on this one? This is Lobel, page two. Thank you. Uh, Jordan, do you want to read this one? Yeah, sure. Uh, okay. Uh, leave Crete and sweep to this blessed temple, where apple orchard's elegance is yours, and smoldering altars, ample frankincense. Here under boughs a bracing spring percolates, roses without number under umber the earth, and rustling the dreaves drip the leaves drip slumber. Here budding flowers possess a sunny pasture, steeds could graze their fill, and the breeze feels as gentle as honey. Lacuna. Uh, Cupris, here in the uh, present here in the present blend your nectar with pure festal glee, fill gilded bowls and pass them round lavishly. Very good. So, I mean, this one, you know, Cupris, uh, as far as I can tell, is, is Aphrodite of Cyprus. Is that is that what you guys basically came across in yeah, your that's right. background? Yeah, I think that's right. So, uh, Michael, I mean, you know, uh, where's the overlap here, and what does this one do that uh, departs from what we read already? The big departure is that um, we have much more of this poem than we do of the others, so she has time in this fragment to to really set the scene and and what a scene it is right you you have this very lush um spring afternoon you can almost you can almost hear the leaves rustling you can smell the apples um does she actually mention apples here i don't think oh yeah she does apple orchards apples are very important to Sappho. she talks about them a lot um really it's a it's a magnificent uh a magnificent description of the place she is which i guess is the isle of lesbos and she does it in order to get aphrodite to leave crete and come here i mean why wouldn't aphrodite want to be in this beautiful scene that sappho uh describes a scene so um so dripping with pleasure that even a goddess uh would be attracted to it and what i find interesting is that unlike the prayers that i remember from homer uh, once again, I mean, this, this is a common thread of, of what we've read so far. Uh, there's, there's not an explicit, uh, ask, uh, you know, there, there's no sense that, you know, Aphrodite come here and give us this or help us to do that. Uh, it is simply, you know, be in our presence, you know, and, and it's, it's what I would call, I mean, in, in some ways, a more spiritual kind of prayer than what you see in Homer, which tends to be very mm-hmm. instrumental. It's devotional prayer, right? I mean, it's it's almost more familiar with a, um, familiar to us as Christians than the stuff um, the stuff you see in Homer, which seems often uh, like you have to give something to get something. Here, it's just you know, the place I am is beautiful. My life is beautiful. Man, it'd be nice for Aphrodite <laughs> to share this. At least that's the image she's presenting to Aphrodite. And and that leads me to a question, and, and I'm going to pitch it to Jordan first, and then you can kind of lateral it to Michael. Um, you know, my my instinct when I read a poem like this is to allegorize it and to make Aphrodite here uh, a figure for certain uh, social and psychological and atmospheric realities that, you know, we don't necessarily measure uh, with our instruments of measurement, but are nonetheless an addition to a scene uh, am I too eager to allegorize here? I think I think it works both ways. Uh, in the very last stanza that we have, she talks about festal glee. Um, that that strikes me as kind of the, you know, the kind of the vocal opening of some kind of celebration. You know, as as fragmentary as this is, uh, and this is where um, there 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 was a contemporary 
contemporary lesbian, a contemporary, a contemporary of hers on the Isle of Lesbos named Alcaius, who referred to um, shrines that some people have actually tried to match up with this poem. So I actually went and kind of dug around in his poetry too, uh, and it is it is strikingly different in character as uh, as Michael was kind of alluding to um, earlier. Um, I don't know. I think it works both ways. I mean, uh, the the literal presence of Aphrodite outside of a myth would probably not be detectable. So it would be in those allegorized forms of romance and pleasure uh, that that would th that she would probably most clearly make her presence known. Um, I don't know. That's that's a really great question. Uh, I I feel like though there is maybe a little bit more of that give and take. Uh, it's not as clearly as in Homer, but uh, if 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 Sappho or whoever the speaker is, because it's not always clear that these are autobiographical, if Sappho has prepared this place for Aphrodite, I mean it it, it seems to be precisely to to sweeten the deal for Aphrodite. Um, I don't know. I don't know, uh, Michael. What would your take on that be? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm hesitant when we read Homer to do that allegorization mm -hmm. that Nathan loves so much. <laughs> but here I think it makes sense, maybe specifically because she's not asking anything from the god other than that she show yeah. up. And uh, if, you've, if you've read any Greek myth at all, you know Aphrodite is not a goddess you want to just show <laughs> up. Um, she, she, she destroys mm -hmm. a lot of parties. So I, I think the allegorization here makes a certain amount of sense. Anna Right, certain versions of Aphrodite, though, right? Because, I mean, that's one of the points that I believe you made earlier, Michael, that, uh, or maybe it was Jordan, it was one of the two of you, I'm almost certain, because it wasn't <laughs> me, that, you know, there is no uh, ur-text for Greek mythology, there are simply versions of the stories. Uh, so, I mean, you know, it, it's not as if this is the wrong Aphrodite and that is the right Aphrodite, but this is a different Aphrodite. And Right, and because it's one of the few ancient texts we have that were written by women... It gives you some idea of how men and women might have viewed the female gods differently than uh, from from one another, right? So the, the fact that she's invoking Hera and Aphrodite, uh, two 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 goddesses whom Homer certainly does not paint in particularly uh, beautiful light, uh, I, I think it might tell you something about the way ancient Greek women related to the goddesses. Hmm. Go ahead, Jordan. Oh, I was going to say, uh, just, just it. There, there are a lot of a lot of different Aphrodites, so to speak. Uh, as far as I can tell, though, all of them are open to uh, to uh, nice stuff, if I'll put it, if I can put it that way. Uh, and a nice, you know, uh, a temple with a really nice orchard and garden area is is definitely something I think uh, any version of Aphrodite would be open to. And hell, I'd take it too. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds pretty sweet right now. <laughs> that's nice, that's nice. Um, <laughs> all right, I want to turn then to uh, the poem Subtly Bedizened Aphrodite. Michael's going to call out the number for us. That's Lobel page one. Very good, very good. Uh, and Michael, I can't remember who read last, so do you want to read this one and I'll read the next one? Yeah, that sounds good. Subtly Bedizened Aphrodite. Deathless daughter of Zeus, wild weaver, I beg you, Empress, do not smite me with anguish and fever, but come as often on request, hearing me, heeding from afar. You left your father's gleaming feast, yoked team to car, and came. Fair sparrows and compact flurries of winged rapidity cleft sky and over a gloomy tract brought you to me. And there they were, and you, sublime and smiling with immortal mirth, asked what was wrong, why I this time called you to earth. What was my mad heart dreaming of? Who, Sappho, at a word, must grow again receptive to your love? Who wronged you so? She who shuns love soon will pursue it. She who scorns gifts will send them still. That girl will learn love, though she do it against her will. Come to me now. Drive off this brutal distress. Accomplish what my pride demands. Come, please, and in this battle stand at my side. So, Michael, what strikes me is that, you know, and again, it, it's it's natural for us to compare this version of Aphrodite to what we encounter, you know, in other Greek texts and then to versions of Venus in Latin texts. Uh, but this is a, a an Aphrodite who has, in the past, uh, responded well when people have invoked her. I mean, you know, it's a, she, she 
engages in some gentle mockery to be sure uh, but I mean the the substratum if you will seems to be a, a basic reliability or am I am, am I seeing am I missing something that's going on under the surface yeah I, I think that's right a reliability from Sappho's point of view from the apparently numerous women whom Sappho has demanded Aphrodite make fall in love with her uh, that reliability might be kind of nasty or frightening, but we don't get their perspective, of course. Jordan, jump in there. Uh, yeah, the um, this this the nastiness Michael alluded to kind of strikes me there toward the end. Uh, that girl will learn love, though she do it against her will, which yeah, Im- yeah, immediately brings to mind the generally predatory nature of Greek sexuality. Um, which, and I don't know how far we want to get into that, but it is, it is amply illustrated by the gods, the gods specifically, uh, throughout Homer and through other Greco-Roman texts. Um, you know, I mean, virtually every book of Ovid could have a Me Too case (laughs) written about it. Um, the, the idea that, you know, just Aphrodite here is, is kind of a, uh, almost like a romantic hatchet man for Sappho, which is, which is kind of an odd, odd position to be in where, where Sappho is both the, the suppliant, but the the supplication she's making is for someone to come and force something to happen, happen to, to please her, which is, I don't, I don't know precisely what to make of that relationship with a goddess, but it's actually kind of putting Sappho in charge. Yeah, that's kind of what I saw. And I, and I guess, you know, when I, think of Aphrodite, my, my sort of core text, if you will, uh, is, is the, uh, Hippolytus of Euripides, uh, where Aphrodite is, you know, just so territorial and is absolutely the center of initiative. Uh, you know, there's no one who makes Aphrodite do anything that this version of it, I mean, you know, just strikes me as, as bizarre. Mm-hmm. She's so solicitous, which is, which is weird after reading you know, Homer. <laughs> yeah, I gotcha. I gotcha. Um, and it's also interesting that, you know, again, uh, I, I don't know if I'm being fair to Sappho by, you know, making this all about comparison, but since we're dealing with such brief texts, it's kind of where my mind goes. But what strikes me about, again, this version of, uh, an Aphrodite narrative, if you will, uh, is that, you know, it is the poet's pride that is driving this, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and, and I, I think you guys are right. I think I, I probably was uh, so dazzled by that that I uh, kind of read right past the against her will. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that, you know, it's not against her will because Aphrodite demands, but it is against her will because poet demands. Put this into the mouth of Ovid, and it'd be incredibly creepy. I, I mean, yeah. For, for whatever reason, we as a society tend to underplay um, lesbian aggression. And I, I, I don't mean to suggest that all lesbians or even most lesbians are aggressive. But I remember seeing the play The Vagina Monologues. And there's one that we're clearly meant to take as this like beautiful thing wherein a woman says that she was essentially initiated by a much older woman when she was underage. And I, I think to society's credit, after the Me Too era, that um, that vignette has been removed from most productions of the, uh, of the vagina monologues. But I'm, I'm, I, I was really disturbed when I saw that. And I, I just thought, well... <laughs> Why is it okay just because it's a, a woman sexually abusing a woman as opposed to a man doing it? Both would be wrong. And again, I, I want to make it clear. I'm not at all saying that all lesbian relationships are like that. Just that one was. And I, I was fascinated by the idea that we were supposed to see it as, as beneficial. And again, the question of allegory comes to me, and I realize I'm a, I'm a <laughs> one-note Johnny on this. Uh, but it's interesting because the more allegorically you read Aphrodite's involvement here, uh, the less of the violence remains. Does that make some sense? Uh-huh. So, I mean, if, if Aphrodite is an allegory for, you know, the changes that happen in episodes of romantic attraction, then this, you know, there's, there's really not much violence left there. But 
if Aphrodite is a character, if Aphrodite has a will, and if Aphrodite makes choices, then this is really quite mm-hmm. uh, violent. And there was a general, there was a pretty generally negative attitude in, in Greek and Roman culture toward what we would call romantic love. Anyway, I mean, like I said, I looked at some poems by um, Sappho's contemporary, and according to some people, her one-time lover, uh, Alcaeus, uh, he's got at least one poem in which he kind of rages against romantic love and talks about, a, you know, why why should the gods hunt me and, you know, ride off with my head hooked to his saddle, you know, like, like, like some sort of prize. So... And there is a little bit of that in Sappho. I mean, we're not reading any of those poems today, but there are Mm -hmm. poems in this collection. Yes, and even in this one, she says, what was my mad heart dreaming of? So there's an element of just insanity to this, which uh, in in this context, I'm not totally sure what to make of that, but I I, I can't help but kind of see it through the general negativity of that, the world in which Sappho lived. And again, the more allegorical that is, the more you just say, well, yeah, I mean, you kind of lose your head, you know, in, in moments of attraction. And, and she's, but she's committing to it here, which is, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Michael. And I don't know how you allegorize that last stanza away. Drive off this brutal distress, accomplish what my pride demands. Come, please, and in this battle, stand at my side. There's a, there's a kind of zero-sum quality to this romantic relationship. Sappho will have this woman, yeah. uh, uh, by God. I mean, literally, by God. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. I mean, that. yeah, that one. Hmm. Uh, yeah, if you allegorize that, I mean, you really are imposing meaning on it. I'll, I'll grant that. It's fascinating because, hmm. uh, again, there, there, there is a kind of delicacy to a lot of um, a lot of Sappho's work, but this is not one of them. I mean, whatever whatever delicacy there is in the description of Aphrodite is uh, marshaled uh, toward a, a um, really kind of brutal ending, a martial uh, ending. We're, we're, we're back to war now, but it's the sort of war that a woman like Sappho is allowed to fight in, the, the war of the human heart. It's almost literal conquest. If if you if you go through Sappho and and think about battle, the majority of her poems mention it. Use use that as an image for something. And a part of that is that she's living in a martial culture. I get that, but also I mean she's living in a martial culture, but she's not directly participating in it. So it's it's interesting to me how often she uses these war metaphors. Um, and she uses them for a variety of different ends. That's interesting. That's interesting. I want to turn to a poem that involves forgiveness. Uh, and Nereids, Kypris, please restore. Michael, what do we got there? That is Lobel, page five. Very good. And I got to get, actually, I just dropped my book, so I got to find the page again. There we go. I'll go ahead and read this one. Nereids, Kypris, please restore my brothers to this port unkilled. May all his heart most wishes for now be fulfilled. Excuse the misdeeds in his past, make him his friend's boon and foe's bane. And may we never find the least cause to complain. May he choose to give his sister her share of honor, but my gloomy misgivings... And then, you know, the manuscript ends. Uh, So, I mean, you know, this one, it is interesting uh, because I often read about you know one distinctive of the hebrew bible tradition is that forgiveness is at the heart of it in a way that it's not in other bodies of poetry and yet this is decidedly you know uh excusing misdeeds right right there in the the second stanza so uh, jordan i mean you know uh do you see this as you know a, a an outlier or do you see this uh asking for forgiveness as something that uh, we could see in other other texts that we've seen here from Sappho. I want to say maybe somewhere in between. Uh, I don't feel like excuse the misdeeds in his past. Uh, it he, here I'll actually go briefly to Freeman. Uh, he translates it, I think, significantly differently. Uh, grant that he atone for all his past mistakes, which is a little bit more mm. a little bit more about kind of making amends rather than simply having something forgiven or ignored. Um, I don't know because uh, speaking of transgression, I mean the 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 
one of the central ideas I try to bring home to, to Western Civ students talking about Greek religion is the idea of mortal transgression against the zones of the gods, which, you know, according to Hesiod and, and any number of other Greek poets, you, you cross that line and that's it, you know, and you don't even necessarily know where the line is. You know, you think of uh, myths about, you know, these poor suckers who are just out hunting and accidentally stumble up on Diana taking a bath and then that's it. Uh, uh, so where, what, what we're talking about here, where that fits in with a system like that, it, it's again, atoning, atoning for his mistakes, excusing the misdeeds in his past. Um, it is, it is not forgiveness. I think in the Hebrew sense, it's, it's, I think it's going to be something more like, uh, and again, we don't have the entire poem. Just give me this favor, right? It, it's almost like asking for a favor as opposed as opposed to wash my sins away. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like the stereotype that people sometimes marshal of the the account book. Yes, you know, be sure that my my ledger reads properly. Right, exactly. Uh, you know, I, I I think you're right that there's not there's not a sense of restoration right. to. Uh, a sort of you know core human nature the way that you would see in in Christian moral theology, right? Uh, but it's more along the lines of, uh, well, I mean the very next line, right? Make him his friend's boon and his foe's bane. Right. Uh, in other words, you know, bring uh, bring him good fortune. Right. A quotation from uh, David Bentley Hart actually that I always flash up on the screen when I'm talking about Greek religion is is this uh, when he, when he tries to talk about the Greek conception of the world and the God's role in it and, and the role of religion and especially sacrifice and prayer. He, he talks about, you know, how stability, you know, you're, you're kept from descending into chaos by what he calls elaborate cultural transactions with death, where you're just kind of buying off the inevitable disaster that's going to come to us. And I get a lot more of a feeling for that than for, I, I get a lot more of that feeling from this than the, uh, the Exodus passage we've got in our show notes, which, which, I don't know if one of y'all wants to, to read that or. I actually don't have it up on the screen. Does one of you have a Bible handy? Yeah, I can. What's I've, the passage? I've, uh, I've actually got it pulled up on my phone. Let me see. Uh, so, uh, ex- yeah, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Right. So, so what I've got here uh, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Uh, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Where this, the second half of that sounds sounds more Greek. The, the first half is, I think, what's distinct. Uh, the idea of a god who's slow to anger, not what I get out of Greek mythology, right? You know, and again, that 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 example of Diana turning a hundred his into a deer so that he's torn apart by his own hounds. I mean, that's there's no supplication, there's no excusing. This boundary has been crossed, and that has to be atoned, whether it's you know directly by the goddess herself or by the the kindly ones, right? Uh, the Furies. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know, Michael. What what do you uh, what perspective do you take on this? For once, I'm inclined to allegorize a little bit because what what I see in this poem is the complexity of her feelings about her brother. Yes. So he's he's clearly leaving for a trip and she wants him to come back safe. But very quickly, her prayer for his physical safety becomes a prayer for his moral correction. Yes. So she's angry at him is what I read in that second stanza. Mm-hmm. That she wants him to come back home safe. She doesn't want him to die. She wants him doesn't want him to stay away forever. But also, uh, he's not acting the way he should act, and she's hoping the gods who bring him home safely will also teach him not to be such a knucklehead. Whatever that is, <laughs> we don't know exactly. Right, right. With a fragment like this, it's hard to say. Right, and apparently, according to ancient commentators, she like had a whole <laughs> poetic cycle of uh, apparently very, very angry, condemnatory poems about her brother who. I gather was a traitor who went back and forth between Lesbos and Egypt and apparently shacked up with like the Greek equivalent of a geisha at one point. Um, we don't have oh. any of that. We just have descriptions of it. So this is not the only time her, her brother, uh, Caraxus comes in for this kind of, um, what, what we called growing up praying at somebody. <laughs> nice. nice. But, but I, I love the ambivalence of her feelings toward him in this poem. And, yes. and, and again, like everything else in, like everything else in Sappho, it's quite subtle. Mm-hmm. 
Very good. Um, I want to read a, another one, and, and you know, kind of what I'm I'm angling for is is I want to get all of these poems read, and then hopefully we can spend some time at the end, kind of talking about them as a as a collection. Uh, but a full moon shown, Michael. What do we got as far as the uh, numbers here? That's Voight one fifty four. Very good. And Jordan, do you want to read this one? Sure. A full moon shone, and around the shrine stood devotees, po- uh, poised and in place. It's a brief one. <laughs> and what I found interesting about this one, and, and again, you know, our our uh, clusterings of this of these poems into the various episodes is is going to be. Uh, an imposition of some sort. Sure. Uh, but this one is definitely a poem about religion without necessarily being a prayer anymore. This is a uh, a narration or even just a description of a religious scene. Uh, so, you know, Michael, I mean, with four lines, what can we say about this scene? I think it definitely shows the devotion of the devotees of whatever God is being devoted to in this in this poem, that they're there in the middle of the night. I also think it's just a lovely sentence and, and there's nothing particularly poetic about it. It's it's very straightforward, but for whatever reason, the way she puts it, I, I find it very appealing. Agreed. Jordan, what do you got? Oh, I would agree. I'm I'm uh this is this is jumping forward a couple of thousand years, but I'm a sucker for the gothic, so anything involving moonlight <laughs> is gonna gonna get me in the in the uh in the fools. Uh, yeah, I, I love its its vision of. Doesn't um, somebody say that moon is the most poetic word? I don't think I'd argue with that. <laughs> I'm I'm sure somebody has. I, I I can't remember where I heard that. I'll put it in the show notes if I can find it. Yeah, that that there's that. Uh, All right, fair enough. Fair enough. Walter de la Mer poem, silver. I had to memorize that in seventh grade, and I still remember it. Anyway, uh, yeah, the the vision of a, you know, no, you don't get out in the moonlight for no purpose, right? There's something something is afoot these people have purposefully gathered uh I, you know i i like moonlight i like the effect of moonlight and, and the idea of you know devotees or devotees poised and in place i mean there's there's an ordering here that i also find appealing you know that's it's people who are organically participating and ready for some kind of ritual and uh as far as this this you know these four lines go everything is running smoothly and that's a that's a that's an image that I just like, kind of like to exist in a little bit. And it, it's interesting what I read here, and I'm I'm probably overreading. Uh, is I guess the image that that this invokes for me is uh, actually visiting a shrine with religious statuary mm. in the moonlight, uh, so that the statues actually look like they are in the act of mm. you know devotion. Uh, huh. Now, I mean, there, there, there's no uh, evidence that, you know, this is an illusion versus material reality, you know, kind of <laughs> scenario. But uh, that's what that's what occurred hmm. to my imagination. You have Ovid and Shakespeare written on the show notes. Yeah, sense. I forgot to erase that. That's the poem that shares the page with that on the in the Penguin classics. Ah, I was trying to figure <laughs> and out how I, you were going to get Shakespeare into this. And oh, I meant to erase that and I didn't, so I apologize for that. <laughs> it, it, it's the Venus and Adonis bit that is in another poem that we're not reading for this episode. My apologies for that one. Uh, so guys, I mean, you know, we, we've taken a look at this, you know, group of about seven poems. Uh, you know, I, I think that we've had a, a productive conversation about how, uh, once again, you know, one of the insights that I've, I've picked up over the years uh, is that when you try to systematize the gods uh, in, you know, I, I would say, you know, Greek poetry, but I mean, it extends to other bodies of poetry as well, you're going to miss a lot of the particularity that any given pen gives to them, so... Uh, starting with Michael, and then you can hand off whatever you want to to Jordan. I mean, you know, what what vision of the gods emerges here that is particularly Sappho's? I, I really think the notion that the gods are personal friends to humanity, and, and not just to great historical figures like Odysseus or Agamemnon, who have these kind of gods who root for them. The, the idea that these gods come down and are just like buddies with Sappho and sure sometimes they do are willing but sometimes she just wants to hang out with them I don't know another place in ancient Greek literature where that shows up now I'm not an expert but 
that seems pretty peculiarly Sappho to me. I, I think I'd agree with that. Um, I, I would, I would point out that I mean, uh, Sappho, as far as we know, is is of the aristocracy, so she's not just, not just an ordinary Joe calling on the gods. I mean, that she does have the the status to do this, and that's that's part of her, her role as a poet and as a as a educator of younger women. Um, what strikes me is is and I, I see this you now almost paradoxically, the uh, despite the what's what's exactly the right way to put this the just the the personality of the gods and again the personal relationships that they've got to put it into evangelicalese yeah that that phrase was going to come uh, up so i'm glad that you finally said yeah. it. it's not a religion for <laughs> sappho it's a relationship ah, that's right <laughs> you have a personal relationship w, with ww alpha d <laughs> fantastic uh but no these these the 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 interesting interplay of these very very personal relationships and the way sappho can call on the gods as pals and as either friends or enforcers uh but at the same time the the distance that she still feels so that that first poem with the allusion to a Trojan War incident, and which which is not the only allusion she makes to the Trojan War or to Homeric material, that felt dusty. You know, that felt like she was really reaching back for it. Um, may, maybe what I'm maybe what I'm sensing is just a, a greater attention to her place in time, um, which is more characteristic of ancient poetry than than modern people for whom the present is everything. Um, I don't know, just just that combination of personality and and distance is what stuck out to me across all seven of these poems. Yeah, and I, I want to pick up on, on something that both of you talked about, you know, with Michael, the idea that this is a democratized uh, notion of the gods, although although Jordan rightly reminds us that uh, it's not democracy all the way. Uh, but then, you know, Jordan's idea that, you know, there's a, a kind of, of order to this. And I mean, I, I think that this is a corrective to the way that I often think of uh, you know, the way that Greeks related to gods, right? Uh, and mm-hmm. that David Bentley Hart, uh, you know, line that, that Jordan brought up, uh, that it's a, a continual tenuous negotiation with forces that are eventually going to do you in. There's not a whole lot of that here. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, certainly she doesn't seem to think that she's going to live forever, but, you know, the gods don't seem to be the main agents that are going to bring her down. Uh, so, I mean, it, it is a relationship with, you know, spiritual realities that is at the same time pervasive uh, so that, you know, it makes sense to invite Aphrodite, you know, where, you know, we talked about earlier the Athenian tragedies. If you invited Aphrodite somewhere, you're a fool. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, in this body of poetry, it makes sense to invite Aphrodite to your spring apple festival uh because your spring apple festival would be materially better with the presence of aphrodite there and i Hmm. think that you know again uh it it, it's a reminder to me uh and i you know i'm not going to presume to speak for other folks uh when i have the temptation to you know think of greek mythology as a monolith uh it's poets like sappho that remind me that uh, all of this is, is very much under negotiation. It's all very much uh, being rhetorically uh, drawn this way and that. There's an appeal in every poem, and I really kind of dig that. Um, well, Michael, uh, you know, since you uh, organized this series of episodes on Sappho, uh, you had this one listed first. Is this one going to hit leadoff? Yes, it is. And after this one, what can our listeners look forward to? Yeah, they're going to be talking about uh, love poems, which is really what Sappho is known for. So it's a a much larger cluster of poems than the ones we talked about. Uh, So I'm not going to list them all, but you can listen next week for uh, love poems starring my wife, Victoria Reynolds Farmer. The poems aren't necessarily starring her, but the conversation is. Right, right. Victoria is much younger than 7th century B.C. As far as I know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listeners, I want to uh, thank you for dropping in and talking poetry with us. Uh, Jordan and Michael, I want to thank both of you for uh, 
humoring me in my uh, tendency to allegory today. I want to tell you listeners that uh, Core Curriculum is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. Uh, our editor for these episodes is none other than Michael Farmer. And in behalf of Jordan Poss and in behalf of Michael Farmer, this is Nathan Gilmore saying, email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com and listen soon for the next episode of The Core Curriculum. <laughs>